0: hope you appreciated Dustin's message last week wrapping up 1st John uh, I was looking forward to watching it myself later uh, but I made the mistake of starting the phone to make sure everything was ready for last Sunday and so the phone had died, it ran out of power before Dustin started speaking so I didn't get to hear his message but uh Now we move on to 2nd and 3rd John. And I think it's interesting to note that one thing they have in common is the fact that they are the shortest documents of the New Testament. Shorter even than the letter to Philemon and the letter of Jude. uh, The only other single chapter books in in the Bible. Uh, Both of the letters actually contain less than 300 Greek words, probably more than likely written on the front of a single sheet of papyrus at that time. And the same themes which we examined in 1 John are still recurring here in these letters of 2 John and 3 John. But the form of what he writes is now less like an essay, less like a treatise, and more like a personal letter. In fact, I agree with those who believe that both letters, both 2nd and 3rd John, were written at the same time to the same situation. 2nd John being written to the church, the elect lady and her children, and 3rd John being written to to Gaius, Probably Gaius of Derby uh, who had traveled with Paul on his last missionary journey from Greece and through Macedonia, uh, at least as far as Troas. we know that according to the book of Acts. In fact, there's a fourth century document, uh, the so-called apost- apostolical constitutions. Uh, and it states that it was in fact Gaius of of Derby that, wrote that, Paul, that John was writing to and in fact John appointed that man as the elder the, the presbyter, the overseer of the church at, at uh, Pergamum. So uh, one piece of support also for viewing uh, the close relationship between these two letters is seen in the common phrase walking in the truth or walking in truth. It occurs at the beginning of both letters, 2 John verse 4 and 3 John verses 3 and 4, twice there in two verses in a row. John begins his message much as Paul began eight of his 13 letters with an expression of thanksgiving. There is so much in the local fellowship to give him cause for rejoicing. And let me say at this point, The same is true for us as a congregation. We do a tremendous job in several different areas. I have heard people in the community say how good this church does through the ladies group in terms of the preparation and the willingness to provide funeral dinners. Yesterday was another good example. I have heard people talk about, and I have had them come to me saying, we were told that your church might help us when they were in need through our needy family fund. We are doing a good job in a lot of different ways. We give a good amount to missions for a church as small as we are. If you took what we give to missions and multiplied it by ten I promise you a church that has 250 to 300 in it this morning is not giving 10 times a month what we're giving in terms of the per capita giving. We are doing a good job. And the same was true for the church that John was writing to. John knew that not all church members were living consistently, but yet he could say, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And to walk in the truth, to follow the truth, to live according to the truth, as a couple other translations translate it, includes both believing it, especially the central truth of the carnation, and obeying it. And this is a place where a lot of times people start to move away. The Bible does not teach that you can be saved by simply conceptually, mentally believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Over and over in the Gospel of Mark, the demons correctly identify Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, Son of David, Son of God. They know who he is, but that's not going to save them. Believing has to do with obedience, and we've been stressing that. And that's why it's so important for us to know the context from which and in which these letters were being written. A major source for John, uh, or major concern for John, was the hospitality they were or were not showing. There were a lot of people in that day who were traveling missionaries. And the establishment and the consolidation of the Roman Empire had made travel throughout the inhabited world much safer and much easier. It was facilitated by the great roads uh, which the Romans had built and by Pax Romana, which even though peace of Rome uh, was something that was great, Rome maintained it but they maintained it at a big cost. If you didn't live according to their plan of peace, you were gotten rid of. But there was still peace. And that was something that people could enjoy. And because of that, the rapid spread of the gospel in the first century is owed much to these advantages. But where should those traveling Christians stay? Because when they were on their journeys, whether it was for business or, more importantly, on a missionary journey. They didn't have the comforts of modern hotels. And even the village inn, uh, those places were either unknown or they were basically houses of ill repute. And the Christians didn't want to stay there. Probably more important to John was that the hospitality was open to easy abuse. There was the false teacher, on the one hand, who yet posed as a Christian. Should hospitality be extended to that person? And there was the more obvious uh, false prophets with false credentials who were motivated more by greed than by what they believed. They were motivated by the material profits that they could gain and the free board and lodging that they hoped to receive. And it's against that background that we need to read second and Third John. For in them, John, who refers to himself now as the elder, because he is quite aged at this point, issues, con- issues uh, instructions concerning whom to welcome and whom to refuse. And why? John will state very directly, as we saw him doing over and over again in 1 John, that many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one, he says, is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Yes. John is very clearly identifying the Antichrist not as something that's going to happen, nor someone that's going to appear in the distant future in the last days, but who is already present and deceiving the church. And genuine Christian missionaries, he writes, may be recognized both by the message they'll bring and by the motive that inspires them. If they faithfully proclaim the doctrine of Christ, which he'll talk about in verse 7, and if they've set out not to gain for the sake of the name, which he'll talk about in 3 John verse 7, then they should be both received and helped forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, he says in verse 6. And here is why this is so very important. In the words of George Orwell, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. I wonder what Orwell would say if he saw the hatred displayed today against people who are willing to speak the truth or are not concerned whether or not what they say is, quote-unquote, politically correct. So let's get into our text, the threefold Christian walk. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what you have worked for but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house, or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. By the way, you just read a book of the Bible. So if anybody ever asks you, have you ever read a book of the Bible from beginning to end in one sitting? You can say yes, we just did that. Did you notice that John describes his relationship to the church in the words, whom, in the plural, whom I love in truth. He's not writing to a particular lady, but he's writing to a church. In fact, he places the I in the emphatic position in his sentence. I, ego, I myself. Perhaps he's casting a side glance at the false teachers, since they had not only compromised the truth, but also they were a proud and an arrogant group, very self centered. John's declaration is in complete contrast. It was the truth which bound John in love to this church, especially the truth about Christ in opposition to the lie of the heretics nor was He alone in His love for them. John continued, Not only I, but also all who know the truth. Literally, all who have come to know the truth. They shared His love. Why did John and all of the other Christians love the members of the church? Well, he tells us why. It's because of the truth that abides in us and will Abide with us forever. It's the eternal truth. Not something that is truth for you, but not truth for me, but the truth. As Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but through me. No, I'm sorry. When the Pope said that there are many ways to get to God other than through Jesus Christ, he was not saying what the Bible says. And there is only one God. And it's not the God of Islam. There is one way. And if we're Christians, the truth is, that we're to love our neighbors and even our enemies. But we are bound to our fellow Christians by a special bond of truth. Listen to me. Truth is the ground, or maybe it would be better to speak of it as the foundation of reciprocal love. John stresses this fact by his four references to the truth in the three opening verses. I mean, did you hear that as I was reading? In the truth, the truth, love and truth. We love each other not because we're temperamentally compatible. There are some Christians that I love that in terms of our, our temperaments, they grate at my nerves and I'm sure I grade at their nerves. But I still love them and I still want the best for them. Nor do we love each other because we're naturally drawn to one another. We love each other as Christians because of the truth that we share. And not only have we come, first of all, to know it objectively, but John says in verse 2 that it lives in us as a present indwelling force. And with us, again in the emphatic, it'll stay forever. Eternal truth. And John says that the false teachers, they they may leave us and go out into the world. But in the Christian fellowship, the truth will remain secure. As long as the truth endures, in us and with us, that's how long our reciprocal love should also endure. And moreover, since Christian love is founded upon Christian truth, we can never increase the love which extends between us by diminishing the truth that we hold in common. And I'm hearing people all the time try to say that. You know, we could get along a lot better and we could love each other a lot better if we weren't just so dogmatic about what we believe. No! In contemporary movements toward church unity, we can never compromise the very truth on which true love and true unity depend. Now, it's well known that letters written in the first century in the Greek language, uh, they conformed to certain accepted patterns. They had a stylized beginning and an end. And usually the letter would open with the writer's name and identify the recipients. And we've already seen that that John doesn't begin that way. He doesn't say, this is John. He says, the elder. Now, I can't help but believe, since elder was a common word in that day, that I think everybody knew John as the elder. The wisdom of the wise man who had been with Jesus. Uh, they had seen his example do you know that in his last days John when he was so weak that he couldn't even walk insisted that they come and carry him to church so that he could be with the body of believers as they were worshipping one with another John simply begins and has basically four deviations uh His beginning is not a prayer nor a wish, but a confident affirmation. And secondly, mercy is added between grace and peace. Most letters had grace and mercy, but seldom did they add peace to that. Grace to the guilty and undeserving mercy to those who were needy and helpless. But peace, peace, that's the restoration of harmony with God and with others, the peace that we call salvation. Put together, peace indicates the character of salvation, mercy, our need of it, and grace, God's free provision of it. But thirdly, John also adds to the words from God the Father and Jesus Christ, which Paul frequently uses, John adds a further designation of Jesus as the Father's Son. And this is somewhat a unique emphasis for John. What he's pointing out is that the man, the human man Jesus, is not only Messiah Christ, but also the Son of God. I find it hard to accept those who want to claim that that they are Christians who want to also deny the virgin birth of Jesus. Who want to say He was born in a physical way by Mary and Joseph and just adopted as God's Son. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that He was born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit. Some of those same people also denied the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. They say, well, it was a resurrection of faith. And those 500 people who saw Him at once, that was a a hallucination. I have never in the history of mankind or all of my reading of psychoanalytical and psychiatric articles and journals, I've never read about more than one person having the same hallucination at the same time. Far less. 500. No. Jesus was a human man, but he was also the divine Son of God. But fourthly, John also deviates in the normal greeting by adding this phrase, in truth, in truth and love. You see, whether truth and love are conditions or consequences or merely the accompaniment of our receiving grace, mercy and peace, they're clearly essential marks of the Christian life. If you are not a loving person, in 1 John, John said, you don't know God. You can't say you even know God if you don't love your brothers and even love your enemies. And they've already occurred truth and love together in verse 1, whom I love in the truth. The fellowship of the local church And it should be just as true of us here at First Christian Church Brook as it was to the church that John was writing to. The fellowship of the local church is created by truth and exhibited in love. (coughs) If we are not showing love to this community, and I'm going to tell you, I heard it again yesterday sad but at a funeral dinner yesterday I heard once again how somebody had no longer attended this church because of some of the fights that happened in the background now that's not necessarily good on their part that they would do that I don't leave my family although there are problems and one of them is kind of left to us but we don't leave family because of fights they're still our family We are created by truth. And that should be exhibited by our love. And each of those qualifies the other. You see, on the one hand, our love is not to be so blind to ignore the views and conducts of others. Truth should always be discriminating. But on the other hand, we must never champion the truth in such a harsh and bitter spirit that we drive people away either. And that's happened in the church. Those who are walking in the truth need to be exhorted, that's verse 4, they need to be exhorted in verse 5 to love one another. And so as Christians, our fellowship should be marked equally by love and truth. And we are to avoid any extreme which pursues one at the expense of the other. Our love grows soft if it's not strengthened by truth. And our truth grows hard if it's not softened by love. And Scripture commands us to both love each other in truth and to hold that truth in love. Second, as I said in my introduction, We need to understand that to walk in truth and love includes both believing it, especially the central truth of the Incarnation, that Jesus is none other than God coming to earth in the flesh, but also obeying it, seeking to conform our lives to it. John says in verse 2 that it lives in us and we also walk in it. His presentation of truth seems to be likened to a path along which we walk, by which we keep course, and from which we should not deviate. Indeed, to go astray from the revealed truth, whether in doctrine or in morals, is not just an unforgivable fortunate error. It's active disobedience. For as John says, we are to walk in the truth just as the Father commanded us, God's not revealed His truth in such a way as to leave us free at our pleasure to believe or disbelieve it, to obey it or disobey it. I don't know how many times I've had people say to me, I know the Bible says, but I think. And I've had to say to them, You know, if you're going to tell me you think something other than what the Bible says, I'm sorry what you think is not important to me. If it disagrees with God's Word, we don't have a common place to begin to discuss. No, revelation carries with it responsibility. And the clearer the revelation, the greater the responsibility to believe and to obey. You see, the command to walk in the truth is not the Father's only command. That word occurs three times more in verses 5 and 6. I mean, the first three verses, truth, truth, truth. Verses 5 and 6, command, commandments, commandments. To the command to believe is added the command to love. As in the first letter. To believe, or excuse me, to be a Christian is to believe in Christ and to love one another. And if we deny the son and don't love, John says in 1 John 2:23 and again in 1 John 4:8, we neither have nor know God. John's already written that faith and love are signs of the new birth. We saw that back in 1 John chapter 5 verse 1 and chapter 4 verse 7. But they are also commands. Some people object. And they say, well, faith and love are not something that's responsive to discipline. And they're beyond the reach of any command. I mean, how can you tell me, they ask, to believe what I don't believe or love whom I don't love? But you can't command those. And the answer to this question lies in the nature of Christian faith and Christian love. You see, it's when faith is regarded as an intuition and love is regarded as an emotion that they appear to be beyond the sphere of duty. But Christian faith is an obedient response to God's self revelation in Christ. It's not merely a conceptual idea we have in our heads, it's obedience. It's loyalty. The revelation has a moral content. And John very clearly said if people hate the light, it's because their deeds are evil. They do not believe in the Son because they're resolved not to obey Him. A man who at one time was a devout atheist who later in his life was converted said, I will not try to deny the fact that my friends and I who were atheists didn't want there to be a God. Because if there was a Creator God, we felt compelled to do what He said and live how He said we should live. This is why unbelief is sin. And why the believer is condemned. condemned. Similarly, Christian love belongs to the sphere of action rather than emotion. Now I guarantee, anybody here who has been married more than 10 years, I'm not going to go to 25, 50, or 60. Anybody who has been married more than 10 years can tell you that they didn't always go to bed feeling warm and fuzzy toward the other person. Love is not an emotion, biblically speaking. Love is commitment. Love is an attitude displayed in a sphere of action. John Stott notes that it's not involuntary, uncontrollable passion, but it's unselfish service undertaken by deliberate choice. That's what love is. So faith and love are both commanded here in 2 John as well as in 1 John 3 23. Moreover did you notice by chance the pronouns that John uses? Verse 5 I ask what does he ask? He goes on to say that we love one another. John's not issuing to the church a command from which he himself is exempt. Indeed, he's really not issuing a command in this part of the verse at all. One commentator says it very well. The elder who has the right to command merely gives us a personal request. As between equals. On the old command laid on both alike by the master... I'm not writing you a new command, he insists, but one that we've had from the beginning. You see, it was not new when John was writing. It was as old as the Gospel. It was not even new to his readers. They had known it from the first days of the Christian life. And it's certainly not new to us now. Also, I think it's worthy to note that in 2 John the Christian life is viewed from the standpoint of commands. In fact, it's the word command which occurring four times in just three verses gives cohesion to that paragraph. We're to walk in obedience to His commands, verse 6, the first part, and therefore to walk in truth, verse 4, and to walk in love, verse 6, the second part. Because these are commands. This is the threefold Christian walk. I mean, do you see how unselfconsciously John basically is alluding to the three tests that we talked about all the way through 1 John? The moral test of obedience, the social test of love, and the doctrinal test of truth additionally Christian liberty is not inconsistent with law any more than love is true Christians are not under law but that doesn't relieve us from the obligation to keep the law now if you question that write down these passages and go back and study them you're wise intelligent thinking people Matthew chapter five verses seventeen to 20. Romans chapter eight, verse four, Romans chapter 13 verse 10. We are under obligation to keep the law. The freedom which Christ has made the freedom with which Christ has made us free is not freedom to break the law, but it's freedom to keep it. In fact, Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. It's one of those acrostics. Each one of the paragraphs begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet to try to help them memorize that psalm. It's all about being obedient, keeping the precepts, the commandments, the laws of God. And the psalmist can write in verse 45 of chapter 119, I will walk in freedom, for I have sought your precepts. So by way of conclusion, notice what John writes in verse 8. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. By the way, when John says everyone who goes on ahead, those opponents of his day, those heretics, those Gnostics, incipient Gnosticism, it didn't come into its full-fledged form until a little bit later. They were saying that they had special knowledge. That they had gone further in the Christian life and they had more information that had been revealed to them. And in fact, in the Gnostic Gospels, actually, all of them being late, 3rd century documents, maybe late 2nd century, in the Gnostic documents... You find such crazy things as Jesus got married to Mary Magdalene and even had children. That's not scriptural. That's not biblical. That is heresy. And we can't go ahead of what the Bible says. We need to stay true to the teaching of the Word of God. And so having described the fact and indicated the danger of the false teachers, John issues his first warning. Watch out! Watch out! And that verb is the same that Mark uses in chapter 13, verse 23, when Jesus gives the warning against the false Christ and the false prophets that are going to be coming. Watch out! Because you see, the error was subtle, but also insidious. It's that one degree principle. Are you familiar with it? Some talk about it as the 1%, some speak of it as the one degree. It's a principle of aviation. That if you are only one degree or 1% off of your target, you might see your target in 50 miles. But when you get to 500, you won't even see your target. Satan doesn't have to get us to diametrically oppose. All he has to do is get us off one degree, one percent. Church members could not afford to relax their vigilance. The importance of such watchfulness is given both negatively, that you do not lose what you have worked for, and positively, that you receive your reward. Don't tell me that you can't fall away. Why would John warn to watch out lest you lose your reward? And John's not so much concerned with his own work, but he's concerned that they would not win that they would win and not lose that reward of their Christian labor. And the metaphor seems to be taken from the payment of labor itself because the word he uses is uh, the Greek word misthos, which is what was the common word for payment in that day of a workman's wages. John is probably thinking of himself and of those to whom he is writing as fellow laborers in the Lord's vineyard. In which case, he's anxious. He's anxious that they won't slack and so lose their reward. So how much more fitting can we conclude this morning than with the admonition, watch yourselves to make sure that you are staying true to the eternal truth. Let's pray.